From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz. You're listening to the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, some closing thoughts on one of the most unique and challenging semesters in Syracuse's history from SA's president and vice president. From the Culture Desk, you'll hear the story of an accomplished SU senior who's now graduating with her head held high and auto mask off. Also, some local student activists and their informal take on climate change. It's Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. The Top leaders of SU Student Association are Justine Hastings and Jeremy Golden, and they have been in their roles since about like a year. Like I think they were elected this time last year. And when they first announced their campaign, it was in February, so before the pandemic, and then obviously we went home, the pandemic happened, and then they were elected in March or April. So they have been in charge of SA through last summer and essentially up until now. And Darnell Stinfort and David Bruin were just elected, so they will be transitioning that power onto them. My name is Maggie Hicks, and I am an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. Representing SE students at the highest level in a pandemic, no less, is a very demanding task. But You know, before we talk about how they've tackled it, I'm curious to know who they are outside of the role. How did they describe themselves to you? Justine and Jeremy, I've talked to them a few times for various articles, and every single time I've talked to them, they have kind of explained themselves as being very, very close to the issues that they represent and the issues that they are hoping to solve or were hoping to solve this year. So they both are lower income students who have had to work to stay at Syracuse and have both faced obviously financial struggles and kind of trying to navigate that whole situation. Golden was previously an RA. Hastings has worked at the library and done different work study jobs. So really in talking to them, you realize that they are very much students and they're very much students that have faced a lot of the issues that they're trying to solve. And that is definitely something that they pushed hard when they were campaigning and something that they wanted to make clear when they were working as president and vice president in SA. Jeremy was actually my residential advisor for freshman year. And I had, you know, a great experience talking to him. Actually, one of the strongest memories that I have of him is meeting him while he was working one of his several jobs on campus, ran into him. And he was telling me about how badly he wanted to be in leadership for student association and how this is something that he'd been going for for a long time now and it's been something that had always been a dream for him and how his experiences he felt really could inform a better student leadership position to better represent all students at the school instead of just you know folks who don't deal with financial hardship who can afford to go here full ride so then let's talk about when they first took office it's february 2020 Let's see, the coronavirus is a distance threat, although menacing and somehow getting closer in mind and sight. Not Again SU began their second occupation of school property, this time in the administrative building. And amidst all of this, Golden Hastings announced their run. Yeah, so it was a crazy time. And I think it was an interesting time to have an essay election going on because 
it was this really heightened time of tension on university's campus. And then obviously we went into the pandemic. So there were a lot of different things that students were dealing with outside of academics. And Justine is someone who has talked a lot about, she was involved in the Not Again SU protests. She didn't play a large role, but she was definitely involved, especially at the Barnes Center. So that's also become, I think, informed a lot of their platform as well. Um, you know, of course, I know we can't program a lot of the issues on our campus, like systemic racism, um, away. But I do think just having events that, like, highlight um, and celebrate each other's identities have been really great. And I think the same can be said about their approach to COVID-19. Obviously, this year has been insane. And so Jeremy and Justine really tried hard to focus on that mental health aspect as well, I think. So thinking about how students have been impacted by COVID, how students have been impacted by taking classes online and not having friends on campus or not being on campus at all. So I think that kind of starting their campaign in the middle of that, when all of those things were going on, is really what informed a lot of their issues and what informed a lot of what they did throughout the year. As the pandemic developed, how did they switch tacks? I mean, did they switch tacks? What was it like for them to come into office at that time and then, you know, have to carry on that momentum throughout the summer? They would both speak very candidly about this. I think it was really difficult. So we didn't know, you know, what was going to come in the next year. And at the time, we didn't even know for how long, especially in the campaign. So for us, this was certainly a it was certainly a challenge because when we like I said when we announced this wasn't a, we had no here's what we would do in a pandemic type platform a lot of the essay meetings went into being on zoom and and Justine talked a lot about zoom fatigue and just the difficulty students had staying engaged with essay and the difficulty that essay had engaging students I think essay is an organization that has kind of had a rocky road in terms of getting student engagement and keeping that student engagement. A lot of times people will come into SA and they'll stay for a really long time, but there are a lot of corners of campus I think that SA doesn't necessarily cover. I mean, it's something that they're working on, but I think anybody from the organization would say, yeah, we don't cover enough of this campus just because there's a very low number of student representation. I mean, you saw with the referendum election and with David and Darnell's election, it was pretty hard for them to get to that 10% mark of what they needed to pass the constitution in order for David and Darnell to be elected. And so I think it was really hard for Justine and Jeremy to up that student engagement as much as they needed to, because it's something that SA has already struggled with a lot. And now you have this added element of students are tired. Students really don't want to sit on another Zoom call at 7.30 on Monday nights. So I think it was really hard for them. And I think that's something they focused on a lot is trying to get students involved. But ultimately, it was just really, really hard. And I think it's something that they're kind of passing on to David and Darnell in terms of, hey, you need to really focus on having students come to SA, focus on having students come and see what the organization can do for them and see how the organization interacts with campus. Right. And of course, spring 2020, you had just finished up your own stint as a essay reporter yourself, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was an essay reporter fall 2019. I mean, then you can really attest to how different the pandemic has been for essay, what it looks like now versus then. I actually just covered an essay meeting 
last week or two weeks ago, which is the first time I've covered one since November of 2019, which was absolutely wild. When I was an essay beat writer, Mackenzie and Samia were president and vice president, and I would go down and interact with them after every meeting, obviously doing interviews and talking to people. And it was just completely different. I mean, everybody had their cameras off. Like everybody was excited to be there, but it was just weird. I mean, it's the same thing that you have with any class that you've taken or any meeting that you've been in. But I think it's especially hard for an organization like that that relies, I mean, obviously they're representing the student body, so they need student engagement as much as they possibly can get it. Hastings and Golden really came into office at a time when student relationship to the school's administration was once again being scrutinized, you know, like we talked about with Not Again SEU's protests in February. What was their relationship like to administration moving forward? I think that's another thing that they would both say they definitely struggled to figure out and kind of struggled to build Both Jeremy and Justine talked about the textbook affordability and financial accessibility initiatives they had. I know that's something that they definitely put a lot of pressure on the university for, but it's something that they just had a hard time following through with it because it was something that both of them said was going to take a lot of resources and a lot of funding and a lot of money from the university. And I think they just had a hard time establishing that relationship, especially because from their eyes, the university was very much unwilling to pay that money and release that money and work with them on initiatives that were going to cost a lot. So I think that their relationship with administration definitely started off rocky because it started in the midst of Not Again SU. And throughout their term, I don't think it was necessarily completely sour, but I think it was something where they... We're trying really hard to build it, but it just was definitely something that was going to take a lot of work and a lot of power and more than a year to be able to build. Because I think that SA's relationship with the university has always been kind of funky and a little bit rocky because it's students asking for all of these things that sometimes will cost money, that sometimes will cost resources. But both Justine and Jeremy said, like, at the end of the day, they are the ones who are gathering the information from students and they are the ones who are gathering the perspectives of students. So it's something where the university should be listening to see what students want because it's their most direct route to what students really want. Let's talk dreams and reality. What dreams did Jeremy and Justine come in hoping to accomplish in office? And then to compare, what did they actually get done concretely? They had a lot of dreams, like I was saying, surrounding financial accessibility. As I said, they are both low-income students. They're both people who have struggled with staying on their feet financially at SU. Both have work-study, both have financial aid. So I think they came in really, really hoping they could have an impact on students' relationship with financial aid and have an impact on students' ability to stay financially sound while at SU. Obviously, it's a very expensive university and It's something that a lot of students struggle with as well. So they had a lot of different initiatives surrounding textbook affordability, having a tuition freeze because it's something that the university has for the past few years continued to increase. But when they came into office, I think it was something like I was saying where those were initiatives that were going to cost the university a lot of money and the university was not willing to budge with them. So I think that that was definitely a dreams versus reality moment. I remember talking to them when they first were elected about all of the different things that they were hoping to do. And I mean, their biggest thing was financial accessibility. And I don't think there were any initiatives that they had that were ultimately followed through with in terms of financial accessibility. And it wasn't 
a matter of them not trying. Both of them said, like, we did everything we absolutely could to try on these initiatives because they were so passionate about them and because they were so close to Justine and Jeremy's hearts. And so we have done everything we can and left no stone unturned. So we hope that the next administration continues to have that kind of mentality. But it was just something that wasn't going to get done in a year, and it was something that wasn't going to get done with the relationship that SA has with the university. So then moving forward, that sounds like another thing that's left for their successors to change. Darnell and David, they have a big focus on financial accessibility. They have a big focus on improving student engagement and kind of just improving the presence that SA has on campus and showing students that SA can do a lot to improve their experience and SA can do a lot to help them get what they want out of the university. After talking to David and Darnell, that's a big thing that they were looking forward to doing once they were in office. Obviously, they were running unopposed. So there was less of a range of ideas, I think, with this election. For that reason, David and Darnell were like, we're really going to focus on just improving essays presence overall and improving what it can do for students. Justin and Jeremy are both graduating the semester. This is their last few moments here on campus. This is their last few moments here at Syracuse University. What sort of legacy are they leaving behind? I think they both are leaving a fairly prominent legacy behind. Jeremy was involved in essay on and off from when he was a freshman. I remember in this last interview, he was talking about when he was first elected to essays assembly. And for Justine, this was her first year in essay, but she did a lot of initiatives in terms of tutoring students in the city. And she, like I said, was very involved with Not Again SU, did a lot of volunteer work. So I think they both are leaving having known that they had an impact on the university, even if it's not the concrete financial accessibility initiatives that they had planned from the beginning, they had an impact on students within SA. They led SA through one of the strangest years that I think any of us remember in college. So I think while they might not be leaving with like concrete evidence of here is the exact way that I changed the university, I think they are leaving knowing that they had a less tangible impact just having led a group of students through a pandemic at school and being available to students and and listening to students and kind of building that foundation for David and Darnell to jump off of in terms of here's what you need to do, here's what students are looking for, here's what we're looking forward to. Maggie Hicks is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read her story, Essay President, Vice President, Reflect on 2020 to 2021 Accomplishments and Challenges at thedailyorange.com. Maggie, thanks for your time. Thank you. I think that there are, that the university will have options to fill that spot with someone who is incredibly trustworthy in students, in student voices and student power, and will lean into that in that role. And I'd like to see them do that. I would firstly say Syracuse University senior. She's an auto. I've mainly why I've heard is that she was like a pretty big natural leader. She naturally fits into her leadership positions. She's very caring. She tries to make other people happy. This isn't really directly adjectives, but I guess explaining the way that she is. My name is Christopher Scarglato. I'm an assistant culture editor for the Daily Orange. So tell me about Caitlin's life at Syracuse University. 
How did she start out in 2017? I mean, socially, academically, what was her scene? She always wanted to go to Syracuse and she studied at Webster Thomas, which is an hour and a half away from Syracuse. And she also really wanted to become auto and she, she, she was really into hackathons too. So hackathons were kind of like the first thing that really came up and kind of with, with her computer science and what hackathons are, are basically these people code technology projects for 24 hours. So people make drones, people make coding projects. And she started up with Alpha Omega Epsilon members her freshman year. They're all like, it's a STEM sorority. And after that, she kept on running them. And along the way, she basically, by the end of her freshman year, she'd also tried out as auto and basically was auto on top of hosting these hackathons. And for those of us who aren't as STEM savvy, what's a hackathon? So before she came here, there was no hackathon. So I think it was pretty important to her kind of going into this. Also another thing too is that, and when I talk with her, when she first attended her hackathon, her senior year, she went to Rochester Institute of Technology, WCACs. She went to a um, hackathon there and she was able to basically develop an app that similar to a delivery delivery app, but like it would also give intel for um, domestic violence and how to report domestic violence. So I think she she said there that was kind of how she developed the importance of why, why, like why tech is important, like why we need to utilize it. And a big thing that she said was that even with these hackathons, even under 24 hours, she was like, imagine what you can do with that, like in a month. Like if you can make this, if you can make that sort of project within 24 hours, you can imagine what you, what you can do in a month. And I think another really big thing for her was that it's kind of an opportunity to also find like other computer science majors and be able to, to be able to code and kind of hang out. And it's just, it's just a niche and it's just been something she's made very close friends out of it. And it's also her major. So she also gets to utilize that. And, and ended up going out in the end because now she's working at Twitter. And what's important to Caitlin about computer science? How does she share that passion with the people around her? Yeah, it, it was. it's one of those things like you could tell that she, it was like her like kind of in her element in a way. Being able to do QSAC, she wanted to work at Google forever. She didn't, she didn't get the job, but it was just kind of one, one of these things where she's really in her element doing hackathons and just being able to bond with people. It was really a way to kind of her to come out of that leadership position. She, she loves coding. She loves helping people. It was kind of a way for her to get back to that. What about other pastimes at Syracuse? I heard she also took pride in dressing up as Otto the Orange, our school's hideously cute mascot. What's up with that? Yeah. So with Otto, she, this is like the second item on her bucket list behind like she wanted to skydive and also work at Google. That was the three main items. So she kind of badgered the Otto team um, her freshman year. She was like pretty passionate about it. She eventually like, kind of got an answer after I think she approached Julie Wallace, who's like the head coach of the auto team. I even know that existed, but like she kind of went after her and she's like, oh, like, we'll get back to you. She also like asked like what her height is. Sanders is, Caitlin's like pretty like tall. She's like five foot 10. The slot for autos is I think, like five foot seven to like five foot three or something. So she was a little bit above that range, but she tried out and she got the position and Lily did everything. So she was able to go to Lockerbie. She was able to kind of do ESPN shoots. She said she attended dog funeral. She attended tons of weddings. She also did a lot over the summer. The big thing that stands out with Lockerbie was she kind of the situation where she she was basically invited to be auto in Lockerbie. Her like and auto co-captain Patrick Lyon. That's where it kind of started growing close. Uh, but basically, they stuck they stuck in Lockerbie for a week. And a really big thing that stood out is that it was during that year that those basically those bikers from Lockerbie were kind of going to Syracuse to rack up the miles. So what the kind of Lockerbie Academy does is that they did something similar to that where the kind of kids, you know, ride around bikes around the school. And basically, Caitlin was, you know, running around the school. She was airplaning. You know, I think that Otto does where he sticks his arms out 
and you just rang out to school and she got emotional about it because it was just kind of something where it's um, like another big thing too. She's able to represent the school like on such like a big level. Being able to represent Lockerbie and like kind of everything behind it was like really big to her. And she got emotional from it. And it was kind of like something she was like, oh, you know, why, like, why Syracuse? Why am I here? This is the exact reason why I'm here to kind of like be able to do this. Right. And for reference, this suit is a heavy material, right? It's not just a mask. It's not just a sweatshirt. It's a whole set. No, it's it's like, a, well, they have like the pants. Like, you can just see orange on top. I, I think it's mainly the orange. Obviously, you're like pretty <laughs> sweaty there, especially over the summer. But yeah, I mean, she just loved every single moment of it. It also took a lot, especially with Jamie, took a lot of people by surprise that she even wanted to become like a mascot. It's just like one of those things that's like very niche but she just always wanted to do it. And this was something that she couldn't even tell her friends about, right? Because the whole caveat to being Otto is that you have to do it anonymously. Yeah, yeah she couldn't really tell anyone. Her close friends like Patrick, they knew because he was also an Otto too. But the cool thing was that I even know this before reporting on it is that like, I thought it was a lifelong brotherhood thing where you can't tell anyone ever, but you get revealed at the end of your senior year. And basically like they post Syracuse post and all the autos revealed themselves and all that. So she did that at 444, which I found pretty cool. Cause that's like a 444 is like a big Syracuse number. And she posted on March 24th. So she got revealed. And now I guess her time as auto is like officially coming to a close when she graduates soon. So the last four years, it sounds like, have been chock full with leadership and innovation and hustling for Caitlin. What's next? She initially wanted to work at Google and she applied for the position a year ago and she got rejected in the the summer. Kind of like a pretty sad experience for her, but she applied to Twitter. She's now going to be working at Twitter after she graduates. She's starting there in June. Christopher Scarglato is an assistant culture editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to his story on Caitlin Sanders at dailyorange.com. Chris, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So the name of this environmental organization is EcoThought, which stands for thoughts against climate change. And basically they are working towards beautifying the community of Syracuse in non-traditional ways. So they have merchandise and group cleanups and upcycling things such as beer bottles and really just anything that, you know, they can do to like transform the community is what they're doing. And when they see an opportunity, they kind of take it. Hi, I'm Jordan Green, and I'm an assistant copy editor at The Daily Orange. And it's a self-explanatory name, right? The goal is to combat climate change. But how? Yeah, and something that I thought was so interesting when talking to Donnie is, like you said, the name of the organization is EcoThought, and you know, traditionally the word thought has a negative connotation to it. But that's kind of why they ended up using that name is because it's not traditional. And that really stands for what they want the organization to be. Right. And so how did this group start out? I mean, clearly it's an organization named and made by someone who doesn't completely rely on just the academic jargon of climate science and climate change. Tell me about its founders. Yeah. So EcoThought was started by Puji in 2012, Puji San, and he grew up in Long Island and when he was living there, his mom put him in this 
like pre-college program at Stony Brook University, where he was first introduced to environmentalism. And something that I remember talking to him about that he mentioned was, you know, learning about water rights and how people in different communities throughout the country don't have access to water. And um, his family's from Haiti. So he remembers his family's experience dealing with the earthquake that happened in 2010. And all of this kind of just hit him. And he was like, I want to do something to give back to the community and really help it out. So he is super passionate about art and he's considered himself a creative person from, you know, the start of his life. So he began like experimenting with different logos on Photoshop and Illustrator. And he said it took him a few years before he came up with the name EcoThought. But it was just from, you know, going to this pre-college program where he first really started the organization. And then he transferred to Syracuse in 2016 and really brought EcoThought to campus. But he said that, you know, something he really struggles with at that time was at that point, it was just an online organization. And he wasn't really sure how he wanted to make the impact he wanted to make. But then he met Donnie Monk and the two of them just like started promoting things for EcoThought through group chats and Snapchat filters and really bringing to life their upcycled clothing brand. And then they started noticing people wearing it and buying it from them on campus. And then it kind of just grew from there. Right. And so climate change, of course, especially in the recent decade, has really become something of a controversial topic in the U.S. There are those who vehemently deny its existence, those who think of it as our self-made apocalypse, and there are those who never really think of it much. I mean, it's been politicized to death. Meanwhile, several communities across the U.S. and globe are actually experiencing its effects. What is the EcoThought take on climate change? How do Donnie and Pooji choose to talk about it? That's basically all what EcoThought does. They want to educate people that don't have that experience with environmental organizations before. So they do this through non-traditional ways. So like this upcycled clothing aspect of it. They also have upcycled candles that Donnie started making this year as part of her graduate thesis. And also the community cleanups is something that they're really working on. Specifically within the Syracuse area, they want to teach people that don't really know exactly how to give back to the community and beautify the area in like these non-traditional ways because something that they both talked about was how easy it is but how people just aren't necessarily educated all the time on how to make these small changes that can impact the environment. For the moment how are they operating EcoThought? What have they been up to? So currently the biggest aspect of EcoThought is their merchandise. So what Pooji does is he'll go to local thrift shops in the Syracuse area and buy a bunch of clothing and then he'll use vinyl or embroidery to put the EcoThought logo on it and then they sell it at an affordable price and they use that money to buy supplies for their community cleanups. So they're very like an in-house organization and everything is fully self-funded. And then aside from that, they also have this candle business as well that Donnie started this year where she like collects beer bottles throughout the city and then she fills them with eco-friendly candle wax and then she sells them. I think it's packs of three for $15. And she said her first batch sold out in a day, which is crazy and like super cool. And aside from that, Pooji is currently a graduate student at Syracuse where he's learning how to code so that he can make video games to teach people how to recycle. And then on their website as well, they have 
like a mini game that's the start of that along with vlogs where they educate people in like these non-traditional methods on how to give back to the community and the vlogs I think are super funny and engaging and then recently they've also been doing these community cleanups so on April 17th they had their first one in Thornton Park and they collected over 14 bags of trash and the event was only supposed to last an hour, but it ended up lasting three hours. And they had people from New York City come and they both said it was just such an amazing turnout. And that's like what they're really building up. The organization in March joins the Syracuse Adopt-A-Block program. So for the next two years, they're going to be focusing on beautifying the Maple Street area, which is part of their mission to help the communities of color and LGBT communities of the Syracuse area. And so they're going to be doing community cleanups, hopefully in that area. And then the rest of like Syracuse for the next two years. And is this a full-time gig for them? That's a good question. At the moment, I think it's more of a hobby that they hope to turn into a full-time gig. They're fully self-funded, but I don't have an exact answer, so I don't want to, like, say. You touched on Pooji's own interest in making this a multimedia project. I want to talk about his brief stint in rap. You mentioned in your article that he wrote a rap to talk about climate change. Yeah, I was exploring their website, and I came across this rap, and I listened to it, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. (laughs) So, yeah, Pooji wrote this rap when he was working for the Syracuse Service Office at ESF. When I talked to him about it, he said that they asked him to come up with a way to promote community service, and he was like, you know, I really want to write something about it. So he produced everything on his computer in his house from like the sound to the beat to the lyrics and the music and everything. And he called it Green Handed. And it's basically to teach people about carbon emissions. Having listened to it myself, it was very catchy and I really enjoyed it. Right. And so tell me what you think, Jordan. Could directing conversations about climate change into the mainstream the way that they're doing Position EcoThoughts to make a sizable impact? Are they really making a difference? I definitely think it could. I think that something that Donnie talked about, which really like impacted me, was this idea of how, you know, you have this idea of what climate activists are. Like you traditionally think of them as the people that write 10 page papers or the people that are doing this like research. But that's not what EcoThought wants to do. EcoThought wants to show people that aren't you know, in this movement from the start, how easy it is to get involved in small ways. And I think that like by doing this, they can impact so many people and really create this change in like, not just the Syracuse community, but beyond, which I know is a huge goal for them is to, in the future, get their mission and word out there into the greater community. Jordan Green is an assistant copy editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to this story about thoughts against climate change at dailyorange.com. Jordan, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. A special thank you to Maggie Hicks, Chris Garglato, and Jordan Green. Thanks executive producer Adam Garrity and podcast editor Mariah Humiston. And to our producers, Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlihy, and Catherine Ito. 
we won't be seeing you next Tuesday, as this is the last episode of our spring 2021 season. It's been a real pleasure hosting the Daily Orange podcast, and an even greater one working with the talented team of folks who make it happen. But we'll be back in the fall with a new host and, of course, new stories. Till then, you can revisit any of our old episodes wherever you get your podcast listening in. Have a great summer, stay safe, and from 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz, signing off one last time as your host. Peace.